Our text this morning is from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 25. Again, you'll find that in your pew Bible on page 1203. As we move to this second part of this great text in Hebrews, we find ourselves in a text and in a message that resembles an instruction manual. Now, for many of us, we know these instruction manuals well. They seem to be the nemesis of many parents. That is, the how-tos of building something. What mother and or father hasn't wrestled through the construction of a dollhouse on Christmas Eve with a simple phrase on the box, only 30 minutes for instruction, for construction and all tools included? only to open the box and find out, A, the tools are not included. It takes you 30 minutes to decipher the instructions because the only words are in Chinese. I found myself several times in such wonderful endeavors. One very memorable one was when my mother decided she was going to buy a Harley Davidson trike for Averill. Very simple construction, almost all put together. It was only supposed to take an hour. Six hours later, at four in the morning on Christmas Eve, I stopped because I was ready to pass out trying to put all of the pieces together. The decals were all on, although somewhat sideways in a few places. These instructions are not helpful. And they make us wonder, really, what's going on? And what are we to do because of that type of instruction? Well, this same question of purpose lies behind our text today. Not because of lack of direction, but because we need to know what the next steps are, having received so much information. We come out of this incredible doctrinal section in Hebrews, the entire first ten chapters of the book, and now we're brought face-to-face -face with this question of what is our response supposed to be to this? What do we do with this? This is really what we want to know, isn't it? It's great to understand the material, but what do I do with it? And because of that, and that question, I've titled our message for this morning, So What? So what are we to do now? We could say this is a so what part two, as we already have started into this text. But let's reread it since it's been a couple weeks due to our storms that have come through. And remind ourselves of the beauty of this passage before we dive into it. Follow along as I read Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place... By the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. 
And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So what? Well, last week we began this great text. And we, noticed, we noted how this text comes on the heels of the pinnacle of the doctrinal argument of Hebrews. Throughout Hebrews, we've been looking at the superiority of Jesus Christ. And that argument has built and built and built. And we got to the final pinnacle of the discussion, which was Jesus' superiority over the high priesthood. And how in all things, Christ was superior. And as our author wrote to the Jewish church in Rome, this was what he sought to show them. They could no longer hold to their old Judaism. They could no longer hold to the law and the covenant which they had grown in. But now they had to enter. Enter by a new way and to have a new understanding. And they could not layer on Jesus to their previous religion. You see, that is a problem of our day, beloved. So many want to just take Jesus and layer them on to layer him on to their religion. This is the eclecticism of our world where we can take a little Buddhism and we can take a little Judaism and we can take a little New Age religion and we can ball it all together and we can wrap a little Jesus around it and we have kind of the best of all possible worlds. Well, that is not at all the world that the scripture tells us about. And so also for these Hebrews, they could not take Jesus and simply add him to their system. He had to be all in all. So as we come to this text and we come to an understanding of all that Jesus did, we realized first that there was a theological peak in the rearview mirror. We've now seen all of this. We've seen clearly that there is no argument. There is no one who can stand and say anything but that Jesus Christ is superior to all who have been exalted above him. Greater than Moses, greater than the angels, greater than Abraham, greater than the priesthood, greater than everyone. So with that peak, the question of our introduction that we saw in verses 19 to 21 was, so what do we do with it? The introduction revealed to us really some radically unconventional details as related to the Jewish mindset. And we have to put ourselves back into that Jewish church to understand it. We have to place ourselves back as those who have grown up in the old covenant system of worship. Grown up taking animals to the slaughter and seeing their throats slit. Understanding the high priest going in on the Day of Atonement for that one day a year when he could approach God for all of our behalves. And as we understand that system, we're brought to this radically unconventional information where he says in verse 19 that we are to enter the holy place. He says, brethren, as we have talked about as a reference, not to the believers as is normally the case in the New Testament. But rather, even as we read this morning in chapter 3 and verse 12, 
When our author uses the term brethren, he means all of the church, those that are the true believers, those that are not believers, and even those who are the false believers. All three groups existing. So the audience there referencing brethren is everyone. It is not just the believers. And our introduction reveals that completely countercultural condition of entering the holy place. You did not dare to enter the holy place. I mean, you couldn't even get near it. As a, as a young person or a child, you couldn't even see anything but the very exterior wall. And then you could see the temple looming beyond it. If you were a woman in the Jewish congregation, you could get inside that wall to the court of women, but you could not get into the court of men, the next inner chamber. As a man, you could get into that court of men, but you could not enter the inner tabernacle courtyard, for only the priest could go. Now, there was the one exception where you could take your offering in when you had sinned and you were bringing that before the priesthood when you would sacrifice that animal. But it was this system that kept you back from God. It did not allow entrance. And all of a sudden, we're told that we are to enter the holy place. We are to go to the holy of holies. And every Jewish mindset is thinking, this can't happen. We know what happens when people go wrongly before God. Nadab and Abihu, the very sons of Aaron, the first high priest, are smoked with fire by God for bringing wrong incense. We have Uzziah, the king, 50 years of righteous reigning over Judah and Jerusalem and decides at the end of his life that he is going to go in to make offering before the God whom he served his whole, whole life. And God strikes him with leprosy for going into the holy place. So now to be told to go in is just inconceivable. Who would consider such lunacy? Who would go? But we have, as it says in verse 19, confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. It is what Jesus has done has totally changed everything. And now we can go. Verse 20 says this entry was a new and a living way. That way being Jesus' flesh, which it describes for us as the veil. His flesh, which he sacrificed on the cross at Calvary, is that which allows us to go with confidence. The very words, new and living way, as we discussed two weeks ago, describe this for us. That idea of new is not the normal Greek word for new, the very common kainos. No, this is a very unique Greek word, and it means new sacrifice or new or fresh death. What a picture. Jesus has provided in a fresh death way that becomes living. And the very vocabulary shows us that something totally different, something totally counter-cultural and inconceivable is going on. And then verse 21 further explains that this was because Jesus is our great priest. Now even those words are a big change. Throughout the previous text, all the way back from chapter 4 of Hebrews, we've seen the comparison to Jesus and the high priest. Now notice it's not no longer 
a comparison to the high priest, but to the priest. It's a comparison to every sacrifice in the old covenant system. Not just the Day of Atonement, not just the Yom Kippur sacrifice, but the peace offering, the grain offering, the guilt offering, the sin offering. All of the offerings are brought out and Christ is the one who is now the priest over everything. And he is great priest over the house of God. There is now a change. It is no longer the house or the children of Israel. Now it is the house of those who would believe. The house who are those that belong to God. It's an amazing introduction to our question of so what? What do we do with this whole massive theological can that we've just had dumped on us over the last 10 chapters of Jesus' superiority? Well, we as yet don't have our full answer. And that took us to our first point, which was step one. And our first point, step one, was to be a participant in verse 22. And again, we discussed this last time, but let's just note a couple of these important highlights. The main feature of step one, of being a participant, was to draw near. Draw near, beloved. This is, this is the overarching command of Scripture. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you, as James tells us. What a glorious Savior we have. And He tells us, come to me, draw near to me. Over and over, in a multiplicity of ways, God reveals in His Word this beautiful truth of drawing near to Him and calls us to do so. And he tells us not just what to do in drawing near, but he tells us how to do it. That's helpful, isn't it? It's great to know what to do, but it's nice to know how to do it. And he says to do so with a sincere heart. A sincere heart, that word sincere here means true. In fact, it is a synonym for the word true or truth. Come with a true heart to God. This is how we are to draw near. And this sincere heart by which we are to draw near is accompanied by full assurance of faith. Now that is a massive statement. Full assurance of faith. No questioning, no doubting, no wondering. But I come with a full understanding. And I am entering the very holy place by this understanding. Oftentimes, beloved, we're not assured, are we? Because when we rightly assess ourselves, we know who we are. We know that we are sinners to the core. We know that our flesh rises up, that it would rather do things that are not right in God's eyes. That we see elements of covetousness. We see elements of lust. We see elements of lying. We see elements of gossip. We see all of these that rise up in us. And when we look in the mirror and we know those, we hate those things. These are not the things of God. How can I be saved and do such things? Do you ever think that? But we're told that we ought to come and draw near with full assurance. Full assurance of faith. That full assurance of faith, beloved, can only be realized when we understand the source of the faith. If we think somehow that our faith is our own, 
If we think somehow that we have come to the Lord, that we have accepted Him, that we have changed our lives and that we are different because of our own strength or our own actions, we can never have full assurance. Why? Because then our assurance is in ourselves. I have no assurance in myself. I have no confidence in myself. When I was a structural engineer, I practiced engineering for 20-some years. I did almost the same structures most of the time. Large-scale wood-type structures, giant houses and the like. You would think that I would know everything about it. I read that building code cover to cover. Every three years it came out. I knew it all. I knew each section. And that was just what I did. That was my book. I did not have full assurance of that. I continued to go back. I continued to wonder. I continued to check myself. Is my knowledge right? That's the human condition. But our faith is not of us. Our faith is of Christ. That is where our salvation comes from. And that is why we can have full assurance. I am not choosing my faith. Jesus Christ has chosen me. He has plucked me up from the muck and mire of my sin. The mire of drugs. The mire of alcohol. The mire of lust. And he said, enough of that. Leave that behind. Come and follow me. Draw near. Draw near and know me. And for those of you out there that know Christ, he has called to you and he has said, draw near. Draw near in full assurance of faith. Come to the very holy of holies. Come to the throne of God. Come to the very component of God's holiness. And come with assurance. Because you have a heart that is sprinkled clean. Two times the heart is shown to us in this verse. And the text reminds us of this sprinkling and takes us back to the new covenant. That is that covenant where God unilaterally saves us. This is what he talks about in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, which we've recently gone through in our Wednesday evening services. It is that new heart that God brings to us, that cleansing that God gives to us, that way in which we are washed with pure water. That is the glory of our salvation and the faith that we have. All of this is the Holy Spirit's work, as 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 11 confirm for us. Our assurance, our faith is not in ourselves. It is in Christ. And therefore, it can be full. And we are called to draw near. As we spoke in much detail last time on this topic, you can go back to that message for more of that information. But step one was to be a participant to draw near. And this leads us to our second point in verse 23. Step two. Be committed. Step two, be committed. Look at verse 23 with me, if you would, again. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The directive in our second step is to hold fast. The word means to cling to. To keep in your possession. Or to continue believing. It carries the, uh, the idea and the, the doctrinal component of the perseverance of the saints. 
That is where we who are saved and who have been called by Christ will persevere. We will continue striving. We will continue growing. We will continue in the sanctification, which as we saw a few weeks back in Hebrews, is the work which Jesus instigates, but we partner with him. This is what the Lord tells us in Matthew, where he says, yoke with me, for my burden is easy and my load is light. Do you know the picture of two oxen yoked together in the field and pulling a plow? The plow oftentimes eight or so feet wide and approximately six feet long, weighing several hundred pounds. One oxen as large as they are on their own could not pull this plow. Not to mention it would get sideways, but two together yoked in this heavy wood yoke can pull that mighty mighty plow and create a perfectly straight furrow with which to plant. The Lord tells us, beloved, that we are to yoke with him. If you are weak, if you feel insufficient, fear not. You are yoking with the creator of heaven and earth. When you pull alongside of him, you don't have to worry whether you are weak. Just stay there and pull. Just keep walking. Just keep trusting. Just keep growing. Just keep removing sin from your life. Just keep recognizing that you must be committed. You must hold fast. This is the, the holding tightly to that which we've already acquired. Namely, salvation. Beloved, we must work to maintain our salvation. We, we can't just make a profession of faith and everything is going to go great. Those who allude that you can just let go and let God are living in disobedience to this scripture and to God's command to obey and follow him. It takes a continual pattern. What happens if you're driving down the road and you let go of the wheel? It's not going to go well, is it? Even if you've got one of these newfangled computer cars. You going to trust that? You going to be good with that? I'm just going to take a little nap here. Remember the story from long, long ago when a man from a foreign country came and heard about cruise control in his RV and so decided he'd put it on cruise control and got up and went to the back to go to the bathroom. Didn't end well. No, we have to keep our hands on the wheel. We have to keep moving forward. We have to keep pressing ahead for Christ, always realizing that it is a struggle. Always realizing that the world is pulling at us. The enemy wants to tear us apart from our Savior. But we must keep moving ahead. We must be those who continue to hold fast. Every day our lives must employ this principle. We must continue to hold fast. This was the first message that Moses gave to the children of Israel in Exodus 19. Listen to Exodus 19. They've come all the way out of Sinai or out of Egypt and they get to Mount Sinai. And that's where we find the Lord giving this first instruction to Moses in Exodus 19 and verse 3. Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. And how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. God tells them to begin with, you can have no doubt about how you got here. Okay, did you part the Red Sea? I don't think so. 
Were you the ones who held the Egyptians back? I don't think so. No, it's been me. Were you the ones who provided the meat? Were you the ones who struck the rock and brought water forth? No, I don't think so. It's all me. It's all the Lord. So it is with our lives, beloved. Can you account what you have done to your own devices and your own initiative and your own wisdom and education? Not at all. What do we have that the Lord did not give us? Who made our bodies? Who made our minds but Him? So like them, God has done it all. He brought them on eagle's wings. He just beautifully delivered them. Carries on in verse 5. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. What does he tell them? If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. It's a moment-by-moment process. Because moment-by-moment, our flesh rises up. Ever sit there somewhere, wherever it might be, those of you that are in in college, I, I found this just a continual distraction. I'm trying to listen to that professor, you know, Monotone Max, who's up there lecturing on amoebas in Biology 101. And I'm bored to death, and my mind is going everywhere, and I'm trying to focus. I want to get a good grade. I don't want to bomb this course. I don't want to have to do this again. And doesn't it happen to us everywhere? We're sitting at our desk at work. We're sitting anywhere, and our minds start to wander. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's me? Is it you? That's what we have to recognize. This is the condition of our lives. We are those who wander from God. And he tells us rather that we must hold fast. And what we're to hold fast to is our confession. Now we should know this word well as believers, should we not? Confession is a continuous part of our Christian lives. As sin is a continuous part, every day we fall short of the glory of God. Every day we sin. Therein every day we are to confess We are to come before God and we are to tell Him our sins. We are to acknowledge to Him what we have done in disobedience to Him. We are to seek to repent, to receive that gift, to say, I will not live this way anymore. And to change and to live differently. Well, it is the same word. You see, that Greek word, homologia, is the root of our English word homogenous. Homologia and homogenous. Homogenous, homogeneous. Homo is the same. Genius is substance. It's like homogenous milk. It's all the same substance. So when we confess homologia, we say the same words. Homo, same, logia, words. We are saying the same thing that God says about our sin. But here, our confession isn't of sin but the confession is of our hope. So we are saying the same words as God about our hope, about what our foundation of our faith is. The same words of our hope. Well, what is our hope? Well, if you've been joining us on our Wednesday night studies in Philippians, we saw two weeks ago, our hope is not like the world's hope. Our hope is not a lottery ticket. I'm going to win the big one. You know, I'm going to win that $20 million. 
No, our hope is our absolute certainty of an occurrence which has yet to come to fruition. God is going to bring it about. Our hope is in Christ, not the world. It is nothing like the world. The psalmist knew well of this hope. He says in Psalm 31, 24, Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who hope in the Lord. Likewise, Psalm 33, 18. Psalm 33 and 18 says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope for His loving kindness, His steadfast love, His loyal love. This is our hope. Psalm 38, 15 says, For I hope in you, O Lord, you will answer, O Lord my God. Was that not a beautiful video that we just saw of that girl? <laughs> yeah, it breaks my heart. You know, we have people in our community that live in homes with no furniture. And here's this little girl, and what did their family pray for? I want a radio. I want to be able to hear the word of the Lord. And God answers. For I hope in you, O Lord, you will answer, O Lord my God. Over and over, the psalmist extols the hope in the Lord. It's the same hope we see from Peter in John chapter 6. Do you remember John chapter 6? It's a difficult time for the Lord. He has gone out and the Pharisees have been attacking and attacking and attacking. And he has told them that unless they eat his body and drink his blood, they have no part in him. And they said, wait a minute. We can't have any part in that. That ain't right. And Jesus explains to them what he means by this saying. But they cannot get their heads around it because they cannot see the spiritual truth he's revealing. And so many walk away. And that's exactly what we see happening in John 6, 66, where it says, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Then Jesus asked the disciples if they will leave as well. And Peter responds in John 6, 68 so beautifully. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Where can we go? This is where our hope is. This is where we must be fixated. The psalmist said, hope in the Lord. Peter said, Lord, it is you. You have given us the truth. We have nothing to hope in. What can we hope in in this world? Can you think of anything? What if you did win the lottery? Well, who knows? The dollar could be devalued to the point in any time where it could be almost worthless. What can we hope in if not Christ? He is our strong shield. He is the rock upon which we must stand. This is exactly what the phrase confession of our hope means in verse 23. It says the same thing about hope. Because our confession is saying the same thing as God. And we're saying that God is telling us that our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in His Son, Jesus Christ exactly what the Father spoke in Matthew 17, 5 on the Mount of Transfiguration. As Peter and James and John are there and the Lord is 
transfigured and he is there in a radiance. His garments whiter than any launderer can whiten them. Elijah and Moses with him. And after this they hear a bright cloud overshadowed them. Matthew 17, 5. A bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. Listen to him. He is speaking to you. Do you hear him? He is speaking to you and showing you how to live. Showing you the confidence and the confession of your hope. We're told to hold fast the confession of our hope. And notice how we're to do it. Unwavering in verse 23. The word unwavering literally means unbent. Unbent. It means holding something such that it is never allowed to droop, never allowed to lose its contents. Now, we're starting into the wonderful cold and flu season. My sweet bride has just been through it, and many of you. Isn't it the most challenging thing in the world to try and take a teaspoon of cough medicine? I mean, you feel lousy, you're weak, you're coughing, you fill that spoon with cough medicine, and then you try to get it to your mouth without spilling it. Because you move it just a little bit and it's running down. you got sticky stuff on your hand, your clothes, and your bed, and the, the bathroom sink. Unbent. Un unwavering. Spilling nothing. That is our confession of hope. Nothing moves from it. Because it stays level because it is in our level foundation of Christ. What a wonderful idea for us to recognize what we must have this confession of our hope is to be held unwaveringly one commentator says never letting it be bent so as to droop to lose its contents holding the confession firmly like a proud flag that is flying high and never drooping to the ground so as to be degraded shamed or disrespected end quote a quote written back, by the way, in the mid-1800s. Timely for our, our day, don't you think? Beloved, we are to ever confess all your Christian hope fearlessly, courageously, never grow silent, never deny. This is where we are to be. Continuing to hold that confession to proclaim Christ at all times. And then at the end of verse 24, we're given the reason to hold fast. Because he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. The word faithful expressing the idea of true belief. Romans 3, 4. Romans 3, 4 says, Rather let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. The foundation of our foundation is truth. The word truth and faithful are parallel words. They have the same root. God's faithfulness is expressed throughout the New Testament. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 9. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, 9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The foundation of our faith is God's faithfulness. It is in Christ. He is the one who has established us in this faith. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 says, Faithful is he who calls you. 
and he also will bring it to pass. Not only is the foundation of our faith in Christ, but the fruition, the end of our faith is in Christ. It's exactly what Paul was speaking about in 1 Thessalonians 5. And even back in verse 23, he said, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, ongoing sanctification by God, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our sanctification is a function of God's faithfulness. He is carrying it through. He is helping us. He knows that we are weak beloved. We don't have to feel like I'm in this alone. I have to have the strength. Because God is there with us every step. He is preserving us until the day of the Lord. You know, one of my favorite verses is in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10 and 13, No temptation as has overtaken you, but such that is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. God is faithful in our temptation. Do you feel tempted beyond what you can handle? Do you find yourself falling into sin? Maybe it's because you are not relying on the power of God who lives in you and who desires, if you do not know Him, to live in you. Because without Him, you cannot do this. An incredible connection between step one and step two can't be missed. That is between drawing near and holding fast. Notice that we are to draw near in verse 22 because of our faith. We are to hold fast in verse 23, to our confession. The connection of faith and confession is critical in our Christian walk. The importance of drawing near and then holding fast. You can't hold fast to what you have not come to. I can't hold fast to something that's 30 feet away because I have not drawn near to get to it. I have to come so that I may hold on. This connection of confession and faith occurs in Romans 10, 9, and 10. Very familiar verses for us. Romans 10, 9, and 10 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. These are ongoing acts. We can't make a confession. We can say, oh, you know, I went somewhere, I confessed Jesus, I went to a rally, and I walked the aisle, and I said Jesus was Lord, and so th there was my confession and my belief. No, 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 no. Confession is an ongoing act. These verbs are not one-time past tense actions. They are present tense ongoing actions. I continue to confess Jesus Christ. I continue to proclaim He is my Lord and Savior. I continue in my belief. I continue understanding that I fall short and I must know more. I must grow in this word. That is what salvation is about. And if you have not done that, if you have not repented of that sin and turned from Christ, then you do not understand that ongoing confession. 
Because it is a daily action that we must be about. Beloved, this is the truth of the gospel. That it is only by confessing Jesus Christ and living in light of that, clinging to that hope, that we can be saved. So the so what thus far is recognizing that all doctrinal truth, all of those ten chapters in the rearview mirror, are for a purpose. Not knowledge for knowledge's sake. This isn't to see how smart we can get, how many verses we can quote. No, knowledge is to create action. We are to confidently enter the Holy of Holies by a new and living way of Jesus' blood sacrifice. And that entry begins in step one by being a participant and drawing near. And in step two, by being confident and holding fast. And in verses 24, it carries us to our third point. Step three, be encouraging. Be encouraging in verses 24 and 25. Let's read verses 24 and 25 together. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Verse 24 begins with the word focusing on the mind. Let us consider. It literally means let us put our mind down on each other. The mental process is focused on stimulating or encouraging one another. The translations stir up or provoke are also excellent renderings of this Greek word. Used only here and in Acts 15:39. That word stimulate has both a positive and a negative sense. Here it's used positively. But it's also negatively in Acts 15:39 where it is an excitation to anger or bitterness. Here the word stimulate is positive and it means enticement, it means motivation, it means stirring up as adding energy. You know that's what makes Egg whites fluffy as we stir them. We add enough energy to make them fluff up. And this enticement is to love and good works. The noun here for love is our very familiar agape love. That unconditional covenant love of Yahweh. And it's paired with good deeds or more appropriately and accurately good works that are part and parcel of this expression of love. With the, and with these, the believers are to stimulate one another. One commentator notes, Love is the intelligent comprehension coupled with corresponding purpose, the root of good works. The love itself being the fruit of faith. Love and good works always go together. It is love that makes the works good in God's sight. Whoever looks beyond what is outward to the inner motive of every deed. Martin Luther writes on this. Faith is active in love. And he says, oh, it is a living, busy, active, powerful thing that we have in faith. So that it is impossible for it not to do good without ceasing. Nor does it ask whether good works are to be done. But before the question is asked, it has wrought them 
and it is always engaged in doing them, end quote. You know, we saw a wonderful expression of this very combination of love and good works occurring yesterday as our youth group got together to make meals for two of the families in our church that were in need. So grateful for Stephen and Rachel in leading this charge. But this is love and good deeds coming together before they were asked. There is a need. Let's go meet it. Well, this is what we are to do as believers. Verse 25 carries us on to how this stimulating or encouraging of one another is to be manifested. It is presented in a negative fashion in verse 25 so that we see the importance so that we don't miss how critical this is. It is to not forsake our own assembling together. The word forsake is a very powerful word in the scripture. We see it in Matthew 27, 41. In Jesus' first cry on the cross, which theologians often call Emmanuel's orphan cry, Where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Powerful. We see it also in Peter's great sermon in Acts 2, 27. Where he says, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades. The word abandon, the same Greek word as forsake. We see it in 2 Timothy 2.10 where Paul says, For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. Loving the world so much that he deserts him. And deserted being the same word. To forsake, to abandon, to desert. And rightly so, it has to do with neglecting church attendance in our context. It has been noted that remissness causes double damage to ourselves and to all the rest in the church. What does it mean to be remiss? It means to be complacent. It means to be unconcerned. It means to say, you know, there's a really great game on TV and it's early today and I really don't want to miss the kickoff, so I'm just not going to go to church. It's being unconcerned. And it has a double effect. What happens? I mean, and, and, I, and I know I'm preaching the choir, and I'm so thankful for your attendance and for your love and for your ministry here. But what happens when we're not here? It has a double effect, doesn't it? I can't impact someone else for Christ. I can't bring someone else to Christ. I can't speak to someone else about Christ when I'm not here. So it has a double effect. How vital is it that we are here. On the converse side, our faithfulness produces double fruit. When I come and I speak and I encourage others and I talk about the things that are going on in their lives, when I share with them their struggles and their suffering, when I share with them my struggles and my suffering, they are encouraged and I too am encouraged. It is a double blessing of faithfulness. How vital is it that we are about these love these acts of love and good deeds. Rather than forsaking, we are to encourage one another. Forsaking or abandoning is a very negative and a very disheartening situation. When church simply again becomes a social function, 
the church is damaged. But when we encourage one another in the acts of love and good works, they're significantly multiplied. Beloved, we need one another. 1 Corinthians tells us that God has placed us in this church. He has specifically placed you in this church. He has specifically, through His Holy Spirit, gifted you for the work of this body. You are to be here doing His work. Each one of us specifically functioning to come alongside others. All of this is to occur, and all the more, the text says in verse 25, as we see the day drawing near. The day being spoken about here is the day of the Lord. It is Christ's return where He will come with the shout of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, where judgment will come upon this earth. We see the day drawing back. We know that that is a series of events. The day of the Lord begins with the rapture, continues as Revelation discusses through the tribulation, and comes to fruition with Christ's return to the earth in the great battle of Armageddon at the end of the tribulation and entering the thousand-year millennium where Christ will dwell on earth, where he will reign and sit on David's throne. Well, we see the day drawing near more and more with the wickedness of our world, do we not? Do we not see it everywhere? The scripture tells us about it. Jesus said in Matthew 24, you will, there will be wars and rumors of wars. Oh, we know that. Nations taking over nation. Oh, we know that. Famines and earthquakes. Oh, we know that. But these are just the beginning, he says. 2 Timothy 3 talks about the last days when men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, arrogant, unholy, haters of God, haters of good, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Romans 1 adds further to this. Are we seeing this today, beloved? Is Wrong, not made right? Did we not hear a beautiful message just a couple weeks back on the condition of our world on Sunday night from Amos 5? Beloved, we absolutely are seeing this. So all the more as we see this, we are to encourage one another. All the more we are to be about not forsaking our own assembling together so that our love and good deeds can be more manifest. We can see good deeds here and here and here and throughout all of our lives. How vital is encouragement in our church? Do you get a lot of encouragement in your day? Probably not if you're spending much time out in the world. We need it. Notice the transition that occurs with each of our three steps. Step one be a participant. That is, to draw near deals with the heart. The word heart used two times in that verse. Step two, be confident. That is, to hold fast our confession. This is an action of the mouth. The heart, the mouth, and then step three, be encouraging. That is dealing with the conduct. It is focusing on the church. The heart, the mouth, and the conduct. But what is it pointing towards? What is our instruction manual telling us to do? Well, this isn't some ambiguous instruction in a foreign language with bad pictures in words that we don't understand. This book is written specifically to each of you. 
your name is in mind in the writing of this book. Instructions to your hearts. Instructions to your mouths. Instructions to your conduct and your action. All of these three steps lead us back to our introduction. Back to a confident entry into the holy of holies. All because of the blood of Christ. We can come with confidence. We can come with assurance. We can come by a new and living way. Because he is our great priest. He has done all things. No one holds us back from access to God. Jesus has paved the way. Through his flesh, which is the veil, we can come directly to God. What a beautiful truth. Back to a deep and abiding relationship with Jesus. One of hearts desiring and pursuing and fully assured of faith. One of a mouth that is confessing our hope to all that will hear. I am a child of the King. The glory of Jesus Christ reigns in me. And yes, I fall short. But he is the one I live for, and he is the one you need to live for. One of action, stimulating each other in the church. So when we ask the question, so what? The answer is so everything. Everything in our lives is to be saturated with Christ. Everything in our lives finds meaning in Christ. Our hearts are lifted high because of Christ. Our mouths speak proudly and not cursing and demise because of Christ. Our actions are honorable and loving and good because of Christ. This is the full measure of our Christian lives. Beloved, is this you? If not, how can you better draw near and have an assured heart? Maybe a bit more time with your father. Maybe more time in the Word. Maybe more time in prayer. That's how you can better draw near. How can you better hold fast your confession? Maybe by speaking more. Sometimes we're afraid to speak because we don't want to sound stupid. Be stupid for Jesus. He'll use it. You don't have to worry about it. He's not expecting perfect theologians. He's expecting obedient lovers of him. How can you better not forsake your assembly? Maybe by coming more. Oh, the joy and blessing of this truth. How simple and clear are these instructions. May God be pleased to cause us each to read and ponder these again. To see with new eyes to more boldly enter the Holy of Holies where Christ is seated so that we may better know His love and His joy.